0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. When Mahalalel had lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holy and sacred passage of your word that we have just read. And Father, we pray that you would bless us now, Father, as we seek to understand these things that have been given to us by your Holy Spirit So, Father, we ask that you would be pleased to work by way of your Holy Spirit that, Lord, we may gain understanding and application of this uh, sacred passage. Uh, Father, uh, we look to you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This morning we come to one of those passages that many folks are tempted to skip uh, when we're doing our personal uh, devotions. we like stories and there are a lot of stories in the Old Testament and uh, the stories are written so wonderfully. I mean, they, they really are gripping, uh, those stories. You think of the narration and how concise, how, how so many things can be said just with a single sentence and those stories leave you on the, uh, on the edge of your chair as you read them. Even if you've read them many, many times, you go back and you read the stories and you read the stories and they leave you on the edge of your chair and then you get to these genealogies and... Uh, uh, they're probably not on many of our favorite lists. Um, the, there's a couple of reasons for this. And for starters, I mean, we oftentimes just simply don't know what to do with them, do we? Uh, what do you do with that? You know, what, what do we do with this? I mean, what role, are, uh, what role do these genealogists play? And what lessons are there to derive from them? But secondly, they're full of names that we don't really know how to pronounce. Some say Enish, some say Enosh. Uh, Some say, this is the correct way. Some say, no, that's... Listen, I don't think we really know how to pronounce these names. I'm going to let you in on a secret. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think... I think in large part, a lot of these pronunciations are lost to us. Um, I won't say that real, real loud, but um, some of the linguists that spend a lot of time with this might disagree with me, but I still kind of under my breath say, I'm not sure we really know how to pronounce these names. And... That having been said, it's difficult for us to remember words we can't pronounce. You know, when you go to the doctor and you've got something wrong with you, and he comes out and he he gives you about five or six different Latin phrases, and you're you're like, okay, I have no idea what he just said. Um, Could you put that in layman's terms? And then he begins to explain each phrase to you. Well, you get that? It's not. Listen, it's not a matter of intelligence. When our, minds are, when our minds are trying to uh, deal with a new phrase or a new word, our, our, our minds are a lot like our computers. They get kind of stalled on that. Whereas if you are already familiar with the term, your mind's not doing that. It's already done that work previously. And now you, you can begin to work on, the, on contextualizing. When we come to these kinds of passages, our minds sometimes are, are working on trying to simply pronounce the names. You know, you're not going to comprehend as easily the, the text when you can't even pronounce it. So it's not a matter of, a, of intelligence here. It's just it presents a difficulty to us. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes these passages are just skimmed over quickly or even worse, they're skipped altogether. Um, there, are, there, there, there are a couple of things we need to keep in mind about that here. I have a couple of New Testament passages and a third point I want to add to these. And the first is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, that includes these genealogies. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. That includes the genealogies. So there is a purpose uh, for these We could add to this Jesus' words to the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. You know, some of you are familiar with the story we have in Luke 24. It's it's post the crucifixion. Jesus has been crucified. It's the the weekend that he's been crucified. These two disciples are downcast, confused, trying to figure out what in the world is happening. And they're traveling on their way back to their hometown of, uh, of Emmaus when Jesus actually, the resurrected Christ, comes alongside of them. And in verse 25 of Luke 24, He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He goes on, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Now, listen to verse 27 here. Jesus says, and beginning with Moses, well, the Luke tells us this, beginning with Moses. Okay? Who is the author of Genesis? The author of Genesis is Moses. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. We have these, these two occurrences in the New Testament that are telling us that all these things are profitable for us. And we could add to this a third thing that I said last time, namely, that we must always keep in mind that the overarching theme of Scripture is always the Gospel, isn't it? The Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important that we focus on that. It's important that we have that going on in the back of our minds or we can get really lost in the details. This is a big book we're studying. It's a big book. Uh, so we want to always keep in mind that overarching theme is the good news of Christ Jesus. These three points will greatly help us approach this genealogy this morning. Now. Again, we've got our, our our old rule of context, context, and context, don't we? Uh, there's listen. This morning's sermon's going to be a little bit kind of like taking you know you, you you went to IKEA or somewhere and you bought this thing that requires assembly, you know, and you bring it into your living room and you dump it out and you got parts everywhere. I'm about to dump <laughs> parts everywhere, and if you get like kind of like, oh boy, what is going on? Don't be scared. We're going to spend some time this week and next week assembling this thing. So um, there's some things for us, I think, to understand Genesis 5. There are some things that we need to grasp here. Um, And the context certainly is one of them. Let's take a minute and look back to chapter 4 and review what we looked at last time. And speaking of words that you're not familiar with or new terms, I introduced one last week. Does anybody remember what it is? Inclusio, right? It's not a word that we use very often. In fact, every time I typed in inclusio in my notes, do you know what my spell check did? It made it inclusion. I didn't even realize it until I was reading over my notes, and it kept saying inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. It doesn't, no, inclusio. So I would change it. Then it would change it back. I'm like, quit it, you know? So I would change it back. But after I did it a few times, I thought, you know what? Perhaps there's a message here, because inclusion is a pretty good word to explain inclusio. It's actually a really good word to explain. You remember I explained in the, the, the best explanation that I had on it, I remember Dr. Denny Prouto saying, listen, think of it as bookends on a bookshelf. And I thought, oh, I got that. I got that, you know. You got a bookshelf, you got two bookends that you slide in, and you've got all of the books that are included in there. There's an inclusion there. Everything that's included in. And enclosio is actually the, show, the, the bookends, if you will. Uh, There the book ends. Now, in the case of chapter 4, I shared with you last week that there's an inclusio there in verse 1 and verse 25. And here we have uh, 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 similar material in both verses. We have the conception and birth of a son in verse 1. We have the conception and birth of a son in verse 25. We have a profession of faith in verse 1. We have a profession of faith in verse 25. In verse 1, we have the first son being born to Adam and Eve, Cain. Undoubtedly, I've said many, many times, uh, if we were Adam and Eve, we'd be looking. I don't see how we could help, but to look at Cain as potentially the promised son uh, who, who is to come. But he turned out to be a murderer. And that, that's what's going on in Genesis, in Genesis 4, isn't it? Uh, there's, a, there's a glimmer of hope, and it gets dashed, doesn't it? Um and then in verse 25, Adam and Eve are blessed with another son. Uh, his name is Seth. And I think we could, I think if we were Adam and Eve, I think we'd be saying, "Could he be? Could perhaps he's the promised one? Perhaps he is the promised one." Now, uh, uh, one of the things I want to show here is the linkage between these two verses, our inclusio, verse 1 and 25. The linkage between those two verses in Genesis 3:15, the gospel promise. Remember, the overarching theme is always the gospel. So we have the gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be a son born to the woman. He's going to be the one who will defeat Satan. That theme runs all the way through to the end of Revelation, doesn't it? Uh, That is an overarching theme that we have in the Bible. It will help you understand your Bible knowing this, by the way. It will help you greatly in understanding your Bible. Uh, In Genesis 3.15, God promises a Savior. Uh, but God also promises, as we saw last week, enmity between the son of the woman and the son of the serpent, or the son of the woman and the son of Satan. And what do we have in, uh, in between our inclusio, verse 1 and 25? We have Cain being born. He could have Was he the promised Savior? No, he turned out to be a murderer. He is son of the serpent. There's enmity to, between the son of the serpent and the son of the woman. The son of the serpent rises up and kills Abel, doesn't he? He rises up and kills him. Um, And if you look at the, uh, in in fact, it should be said that not only does he rise up and kill uh, uh, Abel, but he also becomes the patriarch of a godless uh, line of descendants, doesn't he? Uh, We saw that last time. Now, if you look at the structure of Genesis 4, you see the story uh, of Cain. You see God's judgment upon Cain. And uh, followed by the judgment of Cain, uh, we see a brief mention of Cain's descendants. It ends with Lamech. Um, And don't forget Lamech's proud defiance. We're not probably going to get to this connection this morning, but I want to plant that seed in your mind because Lord willing, we're going to do it next week. But look at verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 4 with me. You know, we see this proud, arrogant uh, boast here. Lamech said to his wives, uh, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. We see this proud self-assertion here. Proud um, um, self-reliance, self-sufficiency here uh, in Lamech. And then we come to verse 25. And we read these words. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, again, not only do we have a son being born in verse 1, a son being born in verse 25, we also have a profession in verse 1 and a profession in verse 25, don't we? You know, in in verse 1 of chapter 4, Eve says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But she's grown, as we saw last week. She's grown through the pain and the suffering. Uh, uh, you know, we, we have a tendency to forget about that. Um, but uh, think about it, moms. You know, if one of your children rose up and killed the other one, think about what that would do to you. And that's what, that's what she endured. She's grown by the time we get to verse 25, which is decades, decades and decades later. Uh, She says, God has appointed for me another offspring. And 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 that's you know, that's a whole different profession of faith, isn't it? You know, the point here in verse twenty five is not on what Eve is doing. The point here is on what God is doing. The point here is that God is on the move. The point here is that God is taking the initiative. And this is crucial to understanding chapter 5. I mean, Cain is the patriarch of a godless society, isn't he? Godless society. But God is on the move. God has taken the initiative. And God is working out His promises. And God is fulfilling His promises. And God has appointed another offspring. Um, That's, I think, how we're to understand that. And what follows this appointment, verse 26. Look with me there. Uh, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Or Enosh. Uh, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we got this far last time, and we decided it was best that we table an explanation of this phrase till next time. So let, we, we need to look at that before we move into chapter 5. What exactly does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Uh, We could summarize that with two words, I think. Uh, The word worship uh, and the word dependence. Uh, If you think worship and dependence here, I I, I think you're right on track here. Um, And and for that, keep your place in in Genesis 5. If you'll turn to Psalm 116, um, I I think it would do us well just to spend a minute in Psalm 116 because Psalm 116... uh, really focuses on this idea. We, we see this this theme a lot in Psalm 116. You know, as you're turning there, I mean, verse 1 and 2, the psalmist says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Verse 2, because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will what? I will call on Him as long as I live. Uh, here, Here the psalmist understands that God has heard him. He has heard his prayers. He's returning worship and adoration uh, in, in, in thanksgiving for this, isn't he? He's responding to the Lord in worship uh, in verses 1 and 2. Um, because God has inclined his ear to him, he is responding in worship. I will call on him as long as I live. And in verse 4, we find the idea of dependence. If you look down to verse 4, uh, that I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Here here the psalmist is not trying to deliver his own soul. He's depending on God to deliver his soul, isn't he? So we have the twin themes of worship and dependence here. If we look down to verse 12, we'll see the theme of worship returning. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? In other words, how should I respond? Verse 13, he answers, I will lift a cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So he's going to respond in worship. So here we, uh, we, we see, you know, w- with these two ideas, and you can look at that this afternoon if you want, Psalm 116, and you, you'll see that. There's another reference, I think, in, if I remember right, in verse 17 about that. I'll leave that for you this afternoon. But back to Genesis 4 and 26. You know, Moses, the author of Genesis, is telling us that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, you know, the reformers would refer to this as the, the, the genesis of the church. Uh, people, people are worshiping God in humble dependence upon Him. Uh, what, what, what Moses is giving us here is a snapshot of really the first generation of people that are doing what we're doing right now. Gathering together. In, in humble dependence as best we can as we're empowered and, and worshiping God uh, I think is what we have here we, we're, we're unable to look down through the quarters of time and see something that we would otherwise uh, not be able uh, to see so let's back up just for a minute here what do we have in summary we have two different lines of people and they are distinguished by two different markers if you will there's the line of Cain and they are distinguished by pride and self-sufficiency, and we see it working itself out all the way to Lamech, where it really finds its, 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 you know, it flourishes and it's, uh, it's, it's fully grown and fully blossomed in, in Lamech. And then we have the line of Seth, and the line of Seth is distinguished by the exact opposite, aren't they? By worship and dependence upon God. Now, this provides us the linkage for chapter 5. You're probably wondering, is he ever going to get to chapter 5? And we're just now getting to chapter 5, and we've got 32 verses. We're going to be here for a long time. If you're concerned about that, we're almost halfway down, so you need not be concerned about that. Just a joke. (laughs) Probably wondering if we're ever going to get to the genealogy. Well, in chapter 5, we have a genealogy. If you look at verse 1, we read these words. This is the book of the generations of Adam. You see that? This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, if you're a reader of Genesis, uh, you, you're saying to yourself, okay, I've already come across that once. And the answer is yes. In Genesis 2 and verse 4, we have these words, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And if you'll turn ahead with me to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, uh, if you'll look there, what do you find? What do you discover? Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of what? Of Noah. Now, uh, you don't need to turn here, but just listen with me. I'm going to read some verses to you. Genesis 10, verse 1. These are the generations of Noah. Genesis 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Genesis 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. Genesis 25, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael. Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Genesis thirty-six, verse one: These are the generations of Esau. Genesis thirty-seven, verse two: These are the generations of Jacob. Now, interestingly enough, there are a ton of these altogether. Now, y'all know me well enough. Most of you know me well enough to know that I don't make a big deal. I'm not always one of these guys that's always looking for this all this symbolism. You know, we got ten of these and three of these, and because we have ten of these, it means this, and we have the. And I don't like that stuff, but. In the case of this phrase, I think there's something to it. In fact, in my uh, library, I meant to look the book up. I can't remember who wrote it, but um, I had a textbook in seminary. Um, I think it was entitled "These Are the Generations," uh, and the whole book was really on this this idea that there we have these these uh, uh, ten statements here, and that this indeed is one of the ways that uh, Moses is developing. Uh, the message of Genesis here. Um, we could say this, I mean, 10 is often used in the Bible as a number of completion. And I, I, think, I think there's something to this. But what I can really promise you is that each one of these genealogies that we have here contributes in some way to God's purpose and plan of salvation. And it's going to be really fun to look at each one of these and see how that works. I mean, my goal for you this morning and my goal for myself this morning is that you won't skip over Genesis 5, but that you'll actually, we'll all collectively together get the message of Genesis 5 and we'll get what the Holy Spirit intends to give us in this this genealogy. There's a powerful message in this genealogy that I'm praying that... The Lord will drive home in our hearts this morning. Look again back with me to verse 1. There we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. And here we see a distinguishing feature of humanity. Namely, that we are distinct from all the creatures on the earth. We've been made in the image of God. Um, Now, this is a huge huge topic. Uh, I'm not going to start this isn't the place to start like developing a doctrine of the image of God. I'll save that for another sermon or five other sermons because it's a huge thing. But let me just say this. I mean, um, you know, as image bearers, we possess incredible value. And I, I, I think of the many doctrines in the church. I, I, this one's one I don't think we get too good at all. Um, I, I'll confess myself. Uh, I, I think if we got this a little bit better, we would see ourselves a lot differently than we commonly look at ourselves. We have a tendency to look at ourselves. We're valuable if we're productive. We're valuable based on what we do for a living. That's a really unbiblical way to attribute value to ourselves. And um, we have a tendency to look at others maybe as not as valuable as they truly are, especially people that maybe we struggle with. But the the more we drink of this idea of of the image of God, we're going to see ourselves altogether differently. Um, and we're going to see each other altogether differently. But I'll leave that for another day. Um, but let me just say this this is easy enough. Everyone in this room is immensely valuable. Everybody that you're going to come in contact with today is immensely valuable. Why? Because we're image bearers of God. That's why. Uh, we're all image bearers of God. Now, the point here in Genesis 5 is not to give us a doctrine of the image of God per se. In other words, the point here is not to lay down what is, it is to be made in the image of God. We would want to go back to Genesis 1 for that. But the point here is to show us the effect of the fall. If you look at verse 3, there's something going on in verse 3 that we need to notice here. It's important that we don't miss this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. You see that? After his image. And he named him Seth. Now we have two humanities here, right? Genesis four. Uh, we have Cain and his descendants. They represent those who are in rebellion against God. They represent those who are self sufficiency, self sufficient rather. And there's Seth and his descendants who uh, will be revealed in the genealogy that we that we're studying. Uh, they represent those who are calling upon the Lord. They represent those who come to God in worship and dependence. But Genesis is showing us something about the line of Seth. Namely, that the line of Seth has inherited something, just like the line of Cain, and it's something really bad. Uh, We have inherited uh, from Adam uh, a sinful nature. Uh, We have been born into sin. Paul picks this up, and uh, most of you studied, we studied this together in Romans 5, didn't we? We spent a lot of time on it. Paul's picking this up, but we've got it in Genesis 5 already. Um, it's already in, in Genesis 5. And this sets us up to understand this genealogy. What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. And I think this helps us to understand the verses that, that come after us. I mean, if, if you looked at Genesis 3 uh, through 5 with me, Genesis chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. We read, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Then he died. And it's pretty easy to see there's a pattern here, isn't there? Where we'll have like uh, Father A, if you will. He lived so many years. Then he becomes. Then he. Then he. Then he has a son, and then he lives so many years after he has the son, and then he dies. And then we have the son. He lives so many years. Then he has a son. Then he lives so many years after he has a son. Then he dies. And I mean, notice the incredible lifespans we have here. I mean, Adam lives for almost a millennium. Um. This has been a problem for many folks. I mean, obviously, I mean, we do not generally live past 100 years of age. Here Adam's living to be 930 years old. I mean, if you look down to verse 27, you'll notice that Methuselah lives to be 969 years. I mean, if we, to, 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 get a, to get an idea of how long that is, I mean, it's 2018. If we take 969 off 2018, do we have any math majors here? 2018 minus 968, 9. 69. We have 9, nine eight, 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 10, 10, 10, what, 1029, 1049, One, 1049. I could be wrong. 1049. I mean, if we were living in 1049, we might have cousins that are like in, you know, once a month chucking rocks at the moon or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> Someone might say, hey, Rick. Uh, I got cousins that are doing that now, but we'll leave, the, we'll, we'll, we'll leave this, out. this stuff's heavy, it's just a little joke, you know, but think about that lifespan. Um, this is a problem for a lot of people, and they've tried to compute the years in different ways, saying, okay, they were not really 365-day years, they were, they were this, they were that, but none of those arguments have been that convincing, really, um, they're not, I'm not going to Start giving them all to you because i don 't think they 're convincing. It seems that it just seems prior to the flood the average lifespan was much longer than it is now. Um, I think that 's what we should say, and uh, because as we as we move into the noah 's flood we 're going to find the lifespans become increasingly shorter. but for me, listen i don 't have a problem with this. I, I, why is it such a problem that God could sustain a life for a millennium if he wanted to? He created life out of nothing. Why would it be such a problem for him? If Adam had never sinned, he would live a lot longer than a millennium. Why is it hard for God to sustain? I don't have any problem with it. Um, I I, I don't see it as being just because we... Listen, just because we don't live that long now doesn't mean that once upon a time, uh, our lifespans were longer. That's... Okay, Um, so I don't have any problem with this. I think we, we've got a mess on the floor, don't we? Um, I think we better start putting some pieces together. Application would be a good way to do that. How are we going to apply this mess? Um, well, let's start with this. Um, the first thing that I think we should conclude here is death is a reality. Death is a reality. I, and not just for Abel, who's killed by Cain, not just for this young man who's killed by Lamech, but for the line of Seth and the line of Cain, um, and this is God being faithful to His promises. You know, sometimes people who are hurt, they'll say, if there's a good God out there, why is there death? Well, um, because God promised there would be if we rebelled against Him. He's a faithful God. Um, I'm not suggesting that that would be our first response to our loved ones who are hurting, but um, He promised Adam, in the day that you eat of that tree. The day that you rebel, death will come. And He's made good on that promise. So, God is being faithful. Um, And here it is. The lifespans are incredibly long by today's standards, but I would submit that they're incredibly short by eternal standards. By eternal standards, even a thousand years is pretty short. Either way, death is here. And... We've got death. Uh, where's the promised son? Where's the promised son? And um, I've been saving this one. I mean, I think the message that we have in Genesis 5 is that God can deliver us from death. I, I, I think you, you remember what I've been saying over, over and over again is that when we come to dark passages, grace is always nearby. And this is no exception. I mean, you know, if I said to you, Okay, here's the application. Um, death is a reality, then closed in prayer, and we all laughed. That would really be a dark message, wouldn't it? Um, that I could pull a Jonathan Edwards and say, okay, well, this is the, this is the, this is the uh, bad stuff, and uh, when we return next week, we'll look at the good stuff, you know, and uh, we'll wait a whole week to get to the good stuff. And um, the Jonathan Edwards, we have record that, that he did that on occasion. Uh, just by reading his sermons, you can see. Oh man, the people wait a week to get to the grace. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Grace is found in this passage in one of the most mysterious verses we have in this chapter. If you look to verse 22, there we see Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. You know, that's a good time to settle down and and start a family. Uh, you know, at 300 years of age. Uh, be a good time. to What do you think? Uh, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Look at that again. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. So he fathered Methuselah at 65. I should I, I misspoke there a few minutes ago and confused you. 65. At 65, it'd be a good year to start a family. Uh, I don't think many of us would agree with that. Um, He walks 300 years with God after that. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now, what are we expecting in verse 24? We're expecting and then he died, right? But what do we get in verse 24? Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Now, how did God take him? Did he die and God take him? No. No. The author to the letter of Hebrews offers commentary on this verse. The Bible is its best commentary. And the author of the letter of Hebrews makes it clear that, that no, God just took Enoch. He escaped death. He, he escaped death. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Here, death is being interrupted. Death is being intruded upon. Here, the, the Lord is showing us in these verses that he is sovereign over death. He's sovereign over death. Death is a reality, but God is sovereign over it. And we could think about the incredible grace and strength the people of God have gained by this act. I mean, I think this is one of the powerful things that this genealogy is meant to convey. I mean, there are other important lessons. We're going to look at them next week, but let's soak in this one. I mean, death is a reality. This man lives. He lives so many years. He has a son. He lives so many years after that, he dies. The son Lives for so many years. Has has another son. He lives for so many years after that. He dies. This one, you know, person A begets person B. Lives so many years. Dies. Death, 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 death. Till we get to verse 24. Enoch walks with God. And he was not. Here, the the Lord has intruded upon death. And the, the main message here is not to, to, to say, okay, look at Enoch. Enoch really walked with God. He really walked with God. And God just took him. So we need to really walk with God. Uh, or we might put it another way. Go and do your best to be like Enoch. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think we should be like Enoch. Um, do, could, could, could we come to that conclusion from this passage? Yes. Um, it, could Enoch be a, a, a source of inspiration and motivation for us to really walk with God? Yes. Is that the main point of this passage? No. No, that's simply moralizing the passage and missing the, the, it's missing the whole thing. What's, what's the, main, the main focus here is that God's sovereign over our greatest enemy. He's sovereign over our greatest enemy, even death. Enoch didn't have a New Testament. He didn't even have one of those little pocket New Testaments that people give out. He didn't even have that. He didn't even have, a, you know, the little pocket Gospel of John. Enoch didn't have that. But what did Enoch have? He had the promise of God. The promise that said, God is going to set us up. And as I've shared with you, that's enough. That's enough of the Gospel. That if that is embraced and believed upon, that's enough of the Gospel. To where it could be said, Enoch believed God and he crowned it to him as Righteousness. That's what Enoch had. So he looked forward to the coming one we are so much more privileged in the respect that we can we do have a little pocket edition of the gospel of john and we can look and we can see you know we can read the gospels and we can go into palestine and we can meet the savior there and we can walk with him and we can see his healings we can we can see his teach. we hear his teachings we can we can sit and, and and study underneath his messages and we can go out to Mount Calvary and we can see Jesus stepping in our place on Mount Calvary and dying in our place. And we can join Mary Magdalene at the, at the empty tomb on, on Easter Sunday as we did this past Sunday. And there we can behold the risen Savior. And we can sing, I serve a risen Savior. Can't we? Because God has defeated death. And you see, It's the same message that we have in Genesis 5. This genealogy that we're skipping is the gospel, isn't it? It's the gospel. Imagine the grace and strength that the line of Seth would have received from this. Death, 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 death. Death. What about Enoch? What about old Enoch? He didn't die. God took him. You see there? God delivered Enoch. He will deliver us too. You see that? Death is our greatest enemy, but the Lord is sovereign over death. And if He's sovereign over death... Then any other enemy that we could possibly have can be handled. Any enemy that we could possibly have. You see the comfort that that brings? What can happen to us that God can't overcome? Nothing. Nothing. We can trust Him. That's the message. The message of Genesis 5, it says, see, you can trust Him. He's sovereign even over death. He took Enoch. He intruded upon the normal thing. I don't think any of us should expect us just to be trans." Ported into heaven without escaping death. That would be missing the mark here. What God is showing us is that He is sovereign over death. He is sovereign over death. You can trust Him. He will deliver you. And here we have the Gospel in Genesis 5. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your wonderful and sacred Word. We thank You, Father, for the strength and the, and the power that Your Word has, Father, as we depend upon You and seek You to understand, Father, You give us uh, you give us such, such a powerful message from Your Word, from places, Father, we might not even expect it. And perhaps Genesis 5 is one of those places, Father. But now, Father, as we look to Genesis 5, and we read that genealogy, and we see death and death and death and death, and we come upon verse 24, and there we see life. And we see that You are sovereign. All the way back in Genesis 5, we see that You are sovereign. You delivered Abel. And You are sovereign to deliver us as well. And Father, this helps us appreciate the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For He is truly the deliverer that the ancients looked forward to. He is the deliverer that we look back upon. And You are the risen Savior who will deliver us as well. Father, increase our strength in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.